I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. Now, today's supercharged tip is going to center around how to combat burnout. This is a phenomenon that is reaching epic proportions in many industrialized countries. It's characterized by overwhelming exhaustion, feeling detached and cynical and ineffective in your work and your daily life. And it comes with a lot of significant physical and mental consequences. 67% of US employees report feeling burned out and this rate is much higher among jobs that are highly stressful. And my guest today is the perfect person to talk about this because he has one of the most stressful and impactful jobs and has worked hard to maintain his mental and physical wellness despite it all. My guest is truly remarkable. He is part of the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office for over 14 years, and he's prosecuted numerous complex and difficult jury trials, many of which involve horrific physical abuse and child sexual abuse. As a senior trial attorney in the complex child abuse section, he was the lead prosecutor on People versus Isara Oguri. You may have learned about his brilliant and compassionate work from the Netflix documentary, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. He's a father, husband, advocate, army veteran, and child abuse survivor himself. Please welcome Jonathan Hatami. Thank you so much Thank for being you. here. Thank you so much. You have a very difficult and often painful job Tell our listeners what you do and what your job is. So I'm a senior trial attorney for the Complex Child Abuse Unit. And what I do is I handle complex child abuse cases. All the cases I handle are child murders. Um, Most of them involve some type of torture also. Um, I handle child abuse cases um, from all the way to the Antelope Valley. uh, And then uh, San Fernando, Van Nuys. Uh, downtown Los Angeles and a little bit of Pasadena. So any major cases that happen in that area, uh, so from Los Angeles City to the north, um, I'll usually get a call from one of the police departments, either LAPD or LASD homicide, and they'll contact me uh, and then I roll out to the location. I try to get justice for uh, the victim. I try to get justice for the victim's family. Uh, I try to find out the truth of what happened um, uh, in, in these cases. Um, and so that's what I do. It's incredible work that I don't think most of us can contemplate doing. And the Gabriel Fernandez case really shook the entire country. It's a local case to both of us. We're both Los Angeles residents. And, uh, I remember when it was all coming to light and just the atrocity of it, but Maybe there are some people who are not quite familiar with it. And for those who aren't, can you give us a quick overview about this case? Yes, I was a younger DA when um, Gabriel was tortured and murdered. Uh, he died May 22nd, 2013. Um, it's probably the most horrendous case I've ever had. Uh, probably the most horrendous case I will ever have. Um, in the Antelope Valley, pretty much everybody knows about the case. Um, Gabriel um, was taken from his grandparents uh, by his mom and her boyfriend. And over about an eight-month period, uh, he was brutally tortured uh, and murdered. Um, Throughout that time, there was also some contact with the Department of Children and Family Services and some contact with uh, the local sheriff's department. But even with through those contacts, um, he he was still um, tortured 
uh, and, and eventually murdered. And in fact, there were at least eight separate allegations of child abuse. And yet somehow he was never taken away. There wasn't ever any significant action. And I think that's what perplexes people that it wasn't like the system didn't have contact with him in some way. There were police who visited that home. There were social workers who were involved. And and yet somehow, I don't even know if this is really an accurate portrayal of this. I mean, I think some people say, well, he slipped through the system. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But I think it's just the pure atrocity of the type of torture. And if anybody has read the news about this case or seen the documentary, uh, the depravity of what was done, I think, is what so many people just can't erase from their minds. And you, of course, have this very intimate contact with it. How long did the trial for Isaro Aguirre uh, go on for? It, the, the trial itself was about four months. It started in September. I went through September, October, November, and December of 2017. Um, Asaro Aguirre and Pro Fernandez were finally sentenced uh, in 2018, but it was about four months uh, both the guilt phase and the penalty phase of the trial is about a four month uh, period. Wow. And you really lived and breathed it during that time. And also before, as you were prepping for it, I want us to talk a little bit about your childhood. I know you've mentioned that this is a deeply personal case for you. And in fact, minutes after you won the conviction for first degree murder of Isato, with this additional circumstance of intentional murder by torture, you ended up spontaneously responding to the packed courtroom and the questions that were asked of you during a news conference that you had suffered child abuse to yourself. And I know you spoke a little bit about this in the Netflix documentary, but what caused you to talk about it at that time? Because I know that you kept that very close to your chest for a very long time. It, um, that, that press conference, uh, reliving it and thinking back on it and, and a lot of people, um, approached me and talked to me afterwards. And I think it gave a lot of people hope, but at the time, um, it was a long, I had the Gabriel case for a long time and yeah. it was about a five year, you know, journey. Um, and both my wife, myself, my family, we went through a lot. Um, Gabriel's family went through a lot. And I think so many people failed Gabriel and, I'm a part of this system too. And so when the jury came back with a guilty verdict, I think both myself, I, I even the community felt like finally, there was finally some justice for Gabriel. It was such a huge like burden. And I was so happy that finally something happened for Gabriel that everybody was able to say somebody was held responsible. And so when I went up to the 12th floor, I had never been to the 12th floor. I, I remember they said, Hey, go to the 12th floor. And I'm like, what's on the 12th floor. Um, and you know, they have press conferences on the 12th floor, but I never had done a case as big as, uh, Gabriel's case. And so I remember going up to the 12th floor and as soon as I opened the elevator, I saw all those cameras. Uh, and it was a little shocking because usually, uh, most DAs don't go through that, um, where you have all those cameras looking at you. And so I remember I told Scott Yang and I told my detectives, Tim O'Quinn and Elliot Reby, that they're coming up there with me. I'm not going up there by myself. And I just remember that 
Um, I was just talking to the reporters as they were just members of the community. And, and I was not only a prosecutor, I was also a dad um, and a person in the community. And I think that um, a year prior, I had gone up to Sacramento and helped pass a law that uh, children of sexual abuse can get um, uh, monetary compensation from their victims. And I had talked a little bit about um, my childhood. And so one of the reporters knew about that. And I remember she asked a question kind of at the end of that press conference about me. And I just felt that uh, after everything, you know, that we had all went through with the trial, um, it was sort of time just to tell the people and the community what I went through. Just, I think, to try to make people feel that even if you're a victim of abuse, you still can be somebody. Mm. And so um, it's still emotional for me, but um, sorry. But yeah, I just... um, it was just like a release and I felt that um, it was time to tell people about me. I think that authenticity in that environment is extremely brave. I know that you must have had some programming growing up or just in the types of fields that you were involved with, you know, being in the army and being an attorney and part of the DA's office. I think sometimes people expect you to be almost like made of iron or something. <laughs> and to hear that you've suffered through your own abuse. And at the time, that's so key for, for individuals. We talk about children just being helpless and you really understanding Gabriel's mindset because sometimes people will say things like, well, why didn't he just run away? <laughs> He's a little eight-year-old kid. Um, you don't have that option at eight years old. And you talked about your own feelings of being scared of your father, who was the one who had physically abused you and also yelled a lot, um, and that you didn't really feel like you had a choice back then. No, you're right. Um, it, it, I think some people, they see things or they hear things and they think, hey, you know, if you're getting abused, just leave, uh, mm-hmm. just run away. First off, children can't. Uh, they can't run away. Uh, even domestic violence victims, and I consider child abuse domestic violence, it becomes very difficult to leave that situation because economically you may be attached to that situation where you don't have a home. Where are you supposed to go? Where are you supposed to run to? Um, and with children, not only is there nowhere for them to go, they love their parents. They just want the abuse to stop. I think sometimes people just don't understand that. And they just kind of think, oh, you know, you could just leave the situation. What's well, it's, it's co- much more complicated uh, than just leaving. Um, and you know, there's an emotional attachment there with your parents. You want your parents to love you, um, and you're trying to get that love. You don't want to, you know, leave your parents. You don't want your parents to get in trouble by the police. Um, and there's a lot of times there's nowhere to run. Where are you, where are you going to go? And so I think at least some things that I went through, um, I can um, build relationships with the siblings of some of my victims. I can build relationships with the family members of some of my victims, and we can have some type of uh, mutual understanding. And I think that um, when you show victims and their family members empathy, Mm -hmm. when you could relate to them, when you make them feel like it's their case, 
I always try to tell them I'm just a prosecutor. It's their case. And I try to give them power so they feel that they're a part uh, of the process. Because if you do that, then they become much more invested. They also feel like they're able to do something. They don't feel powerless because court can be very intimidating and you don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. And so I think those things, I think, do help me in my job and help me with that with my relationship with the family members and the siblings. I think people can really tell that these cases are not just cases to you. They're not just a job. And I definitely think that your compassion really came through in the Netflix documentary. You really sacrificed so much of yourself to give Gabriel a voice because he wasn't there to fend for himself. And you had to get into the mindset of Gabriel and show the jury what he may have gone through and how this is not, as I know the defense was trying to posit uh, a crime of passion. This was systematic torture where there was really nowhere else to go except the death of this child eventually in the way that they were treating him. And I know that you yourself as a child actually had to testify in court even before you had your law degree, you had to do it in the context of your parents' divorce and the custody uh, battle that ensued. Can you tell me a little bit about that time and what happened? I mean, first off, court's scary. Um, court is yeah. scary for adults. So yes. if, yeah, so imagine if you're a child, you know, I mean, then it's, it's so much more scary and intimidating. Um, and then if you have to sit up there and talk about something that is embarrassing, um, you know, like you said before, I think a long time ago, especially when I was in the army, there's no way I would talk about my abuse because uh, I know for a fact um, most of the people in there would tease me. Uh, they would be mean to me. Um, they make me feel worse than I already am. Um, I think now, especially in 2020, it's a, you're a lot more able to talk about these things. And I think that's good and that's healthy. Um, the community is much more supportive of these things. But I remember back, um, my parents had a really bad. Um, relationship and they had a really bad, um, separation. Um, and, uh, it was difficult for my brother and I, and, um, about a week prior to the court hearing, um, my parents got into a big fight. We lived in an apartment complex in Queens and they got into a big fight within this kind of courtyard. And, uh, it had to do with the visitation of uh, my brother and I, and the police were involved um, and it was a lot of yelling and screaming. And I remember, um, I went for whatever reason, stayed with my dad and my brother was with my mom for this kind of week period. And then after a week, we had this court hearing. Um, and, um, I just remember, you know, how big the court was and how kind of small I felt. And, um, I remember the judge asking me numerous times, you know, where do I want to go? Where do I want to stay? And as a child, how are you supposed to make, how are you supposed to say, oh, I want to stay with my mom or want to say, like my dad, how, how you, you, there's no way you can make that decision. You just, you just, you just, how do you do that? And then just being scared to not even say anything, um, which I was. And so a lot of times when I have child victims and child witnesses, and they can't talk where I see judges and defense attorneys and people getting mad. You can't get mad for that because it's, it's very scary. Um, and so you really have to try to build a relationship 
with a child before you jump right into, hey, where do you want to stay? Um, mm. You know, and so it was, it was, I'll always remember that because I was so scared. I didn't want to say, I didn't, I, I couldn't say anything. Um, and I, and I do take that with me in my cases when I always have uh, children testify to realize how difficult it is, especially when you're dealing with talking about your parents and something really horrible happening. Um, yeah, it was a tough time. It was, it was really difficult. And even recollecting it now, I can tell that the memory is still so vivid for you, but it does give you that extra understanding of what children have to go through. And in fact, in Isaro's case, Gabriel's brother and sister had to testify. And I know that this part was not captured by the cameras as it should not have. They were minors, but we had pieces of the transcript in terms of what they said and also their earlier discussions with the investigators. And it's heartbreaking thinking about putting children in that position because as you mentioned, it's very conflictual. You can have parents who were terrible and yeah, maybe they were doing their best. Maybe they weren't, you know, but whatever the case may be, if you've suffered abuse at the hand of your parents, it doesn't mean that you stop loving them. And you don't want your mom or dad to go to jail forever or God forbid the death penalty, which was on the table. Um, so I think that's a very, very difficult thing to contend with as a child and to have that sort of responsibility placed on your shoulders. And you don't have the tools. Your, your brain is not supposed to be comprehending things like that as a child. Um, and yet you are put in this position and, and, and you're needed by the system to decide what happens. So I know that you spoken about this before, but it was contentious, this divorce that your parents had. And then your mom actually even kidnapped you at one point. And apparently she didn't get in much trouble for that, which I find is amazing. I think this probably would be very different nowadays, but she kind of didn't get in trouble that much. I mean, how did you feel during that time when you were kidnapped by your mom? Did you think of it as kidnapping or you weren't sure what that was? So that I mean that those are really interesting points. I think the first is I think back when I was a child, we really didn't have the Amber Alert that you no. know where parents were taking their children. And I think back then, parents could take children, and it wasn't really considered like it is now. I don't think people really understood the harm uh, that was happening to children. And so, um, you know, I think really back then they viewed children as property. Finally, we're try trying to see children as actually people. Um, and so that's a good question. I'm not sure. I know after the longer it went on that I was angry that I didn't have a dad, you'd have, you know, mm -hmm. father's day, you'd have things like that. And as children, you know, you want to be like everybody else and, and you see them having dads and you don't get to have a dad. Um, mm -hmm. I think that was, was, I remember that a lot. Um, I think the older I got, um, I realized it was kidnapping. I, I think I, I came to the realization that I was a victim when I was in the army. When I finally, I, I felt so bad about myself for a long period of time. And it wasn't until I got into the army that I started feeling a little good about myself, that I could be somebody, that I started kind of reflecting and thinking about my past and why I was angry, why things were happening. And then I started realizing that I was a victim. Um, and realizing what my mom did 
Um, and so I think when you're a child, you don't really understand that. Um, but it, 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 I finally at some point um, uh, understood that. I did want to go back to one thing just to let you know. The toughest part of the trial was having Ezekiel and Virginia testify. Um, what cameras didn't capture was um, I felt really guilty about that. Um, yeah. I would, I would on breaks and at lunch, I was outside, you know, crying. I, I, I had used the victim advocates to help me. I was like, um, it, it, it was, it, it was, it bothered me a lot because you, you see the pain that they're going through having to relive what happened and you feel guilty because, um, you don't want them to be hurt anymore. Um, yeah. but they were so brave in doing that. Um, um, and, and I still talk to Ezekiel and Virginia and, and I, and I care about them. And, um, um, they, they, they were really brave in, in getting up in front of everybody, uh, and talking about, um, what they talked about, but that was the, probably the most difficult part of the trial was just to have them, uh, up there and testify. And that's really why at the end we ended up, um, giving Pearl Fernandez life without the possibility of parole is both Ezekiel and Virginia just couldn't do another trial emotionally. Um, mm. and, and they both approached me and said they didn't want to be responsible for their mom, uh, getting the death penalty and they wouldn't be responsible for that. But to listen to children say that to you, um, I think that me personally, and just the type of person I am, I would never want a child to have that, you know, guilt on them. It's just brutal. And so people don't know there's so many different aspects to the case, not just the trial. I know some people you are know, mad that Pearl didn't get uh, the death penalty, but people just don't understand that. Um, there's a lot of aspects that go on to these cases, especially death penalty cases. Um, and people have to look at those and think about that. And um, it was difficult. Um, it was difficult. I do think it was a just decision because she'll never get out. Uh, and the children, you know, they have to live. They have to keep going. We have responsibility to help them. Um, so yeah. I just wanted to, Sorry, I wanted to come back to that. No, I'm glad you mentioned that because I think there is something that people who have been through this themselves will understand um, that children somehow always attribute it to themselves, whatever is going on. So whether it's the parents divorcing or them being physically abused or sexually abused, um, there's something about the human condition that is seeking the explanation and especially for children you're more egocentric as a child. You know, you're, you are the center of your little universe and you're like, oh, I'm the one who caused this, you know, whether it's my parents separating or my dad hitting me. And I think you, you did something really, really wonderful by, by sparing them of having that responsibility. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them you're not responsible. They're the ones who did this, but they'll always feel that way. And then they'll carry that with them forever. When you were a child and you were going through all of this with your parents, did you find yourself blaming yourself for what's happening or wondering if it was you that was causing them to act this way? I totally blame myself. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, 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 it affects child abuse affects your self-esteem. It affects how you grow physically and mentally. It affects your schoolwork. Um, it affects your relationship with others. Um, it affects, I mean, what happens in your childhood lasts a lifetime. And I think you're, you, you, it just does. And so um, for a long time, I blame myself. For a long time, I just didn't feel like I was worth anything. 
Um, and so um, it, 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 it's really devastating. It could really have, a, it, and it's hard, you know, a lot of people can't recover from it um, and yeah. you can't blame them for that. Um, it takes a lot and different little things that happen in your life to be able to try to recover from something like that. Um, but I did blame myself. I routinely work with victims of child abuse and they're in their 50s, 60s, and 70s now, and their self-esteem still hasn't recovered. And their life was punctuated by these efforts to climb out of the position of a victim and falling back in and feeling like they have no control over what happens in their lives. And then of course, the very sad thing is that they then pass it on to the next generation oftentimes. And I know you've spoken about your own fears um, when you were younger that I want to get married. I want to have kids, but you had your own fears about making those commitments and being a father. Why? One, I was first, I was scared to get married. Um, I, you know, I, my, my experience was my parents and that situation wasn't good. Um, yeah. and, um, so you see that and you're like, I don't want to get involved in something like that. Um, second, you have trust issues, you know, to, to be able to get married to somebody, I think you have to trust that they're not going to hurt you. Um, yeah. and I think that's a big step. Um, and it's hard to do that or even the ability of letting somebody in where they can hurt you. Um, mm -hmm. That's also a big step. And so I think that I realized a lot of those things and I was like, yeah, no way. I'm not going to put myself out there. Um, it's safer just to have, you know, short-term relationships and um, at least for me. Um, mm -hmm. But at some point um, I wanted to be a dad. I mean, I think I always wanted to be a dad. Um, and I think the older I got, uh, the more secure I felt in myself. Um, I think I was more ready to do that. And then, you know, meeting the right person, you just get lucky. I mean, I think I got lucky to meet the right person, um, who is loving, who loves me for me, who I saw as someone who would be a good mom, um, who would be a good best friend and a good partner. Um, but it took a long time. I was older. So, you know, it took, took me a long time to, to, to allow somebody in and, and uh, allow them to know everything about me. Um, and even, even, you know, now, I mean, it's, it's hard being a dad because, um, I know inside of me, I have, you know, that, that yelling that my dad had. And I remember just his yelling, I'd start crying. It was so scary. And, and children remember many times the negative things. They don't remember a lot of the positive things. People need to understand that. You remember the beatings. You remember the yelling. You remember the screaming. You don't necessarily remember some of the positive things. And so you have to be very careful as a parent not, not to, to do things like that, to really, like, why would you want your child to be scared of you? Um, and so, um, but I have a good partner, somebody who understands me and, and understands my shortcomings. Um, and I think we can help each other uh, with, with that. And it's all about having a good partner, as you mentioned, who you can at least learn to trust and know that maybe one day you'll tell them something and they might be shocked or frightened, but they'll still love you that you went through something like this, but they understand that you're working on it and you're doing your best. And I know you've mentioned your 
wife, Roxanne, who is a LAPD detective. She's got a really tough job too, but that she came from a more stable family environment. And in some ways it's, it's helpful to have that somebody who has that model, a different model growing up and being able to point out, Hey, you know what? You raised your voice or you called me a name and that's, that doesn't feel good, you know, and, and being able to have that conversation. Um, and you have done such a good job of being a present dad and basically redoing your own childhood in the process. I think it is something really remarkable to be able to provide a completely different template for being a father than the one that you were exposed to. It's hard when you don't have a model. So where do you find your models for being a good dad? You know, what you said is 100% accurate. It's really something that you have to kind of realize. I mean, for me, the fact that Roxanne um, came from a really stable family, a mom and a dad who are loving, who accepted me, who love me. Um, I see a lot of how to be a good dad from Roxanne's dad, who's just a really, really good person um, and very loving and, and open. Um, so I think that's a really good role model. I have really good friends who are really good dads um, and you can watch them and you could see you know, how to be a good dad. Um, you know, I learned a lot from my own kids about how to be a good dad too. Uh, um, but I think Roxanne really, she can show me how to be a good dad. Um, people don't realize that, 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 you know, she, had, she, she, she's just a superstar and, and, and my best friend. Um, and sorry, but yeah. she, she really, um, uh, helps me kind of like understand things. And like you said, um, the way I grew up, you know, you call people names and then you just, you just get over it. But most yeah. people that they're not cool with that, you know, because it really does affect them in, in a really, really deep way. And when you see that, and, and especially with somebody you care about, you're like, wow, yeah, I got to change. I got to try to understand, you know, why I'm doing that and that how, how it makes me feel really bad about themselves. Um, but it also tells you like, the life I went through and I'm like, wow, like, you know, they, you know, I um, went through all these different things and it just affects people differently, but she's really good at that at, um, in a very calm way, uh, talking to me. And so I can kind of understand, um, cause it's hard for people, especially me to, to recognize my shortcomings and then try mm -hmm. to be a better person, uh, for it. But I think Roxanne's dad, for sure. Uh, Roxanne herself, uh, friends of mine, um, all sorts of, you know, I mean, I, I, I see all sorts of individuals who inspire me, um, you know, who, who show me, you know, how to be a good person, how to be a good dad, how to be caring. Um, but Roxanne's dad for sure. Yeah. And it's great because it's something that you continually work on. As you mentioned, child abuse really does wreck um, so many things. It, it can change your biological development, your uh, mental development, your mental health, your physical development, all of those things. And and so you you started to recover, especially in the army, when you really found more direction, felt like you could do things, felt more effective about yourself. Then you went to law school and you made this very crucial decision to work specifically in child abuse cases, which I think there are some people who would look at your life and what you've been through and say, wouldn't you want to get the farthest away from this kind of thing that you can because of what you've been through? So 
what motivated you to do the, the terribly difficult work that you do now? So I think when I got in the army, um, I started to realize that I could be somebody and that I am a good person who could contribute somewhat to uh, society. And I started to get some more self-worth. And I also had a family because I didn't really have a family. And with the army, I had this family and, um, and I did good in the army. You know, I, I was, I, I was promoted really fast. I, I was, you know, did all sorts of physical fit. You know, I was just really good. I was good in marksmanship. I was good in a lot of things. So I started to feel good about myself. And then when I was able to do that, I was able to reflect and realize some of the things that I went through and why I was the way I am, why I had anger issues, uh, why I had certain issues. And so I think that gave me a good direction. And then, um, at some point I gave the army everything I had, they gave me, uh, things. And then I was ready to, to get out and, you know, start my life. It, it, it took a little bit longer because of what happened to me, but I, and I decided at that point that I wanted to do something with children. I just felt that because of the issues I went through and the knowledge I had, uh, that I could contribute back to children and hopefully try to help some children not have to go through some of the things I went through or to at least give them some sort of empathy. Also to show them just because you went through abuse doesn't mean you can't be somebody. Doesn't mean you can't overcome that and be successful. And I think, you know, when I was in the army, I I kind of decided that and I started going through the process. And, you know, even when I was in college, I, I knew I wanted to do something with children. I just didn't know what, um, I could do. And I could tell you this, I've gotten probably five or 600 emails since the documentary. And so many people ask me, how do I become a prosecutor? Like I want to help children. And so I always tell them, Hey, I didn't know about that either. It's like, I, I was, didn't really kind of understand what I could do to help children. And it was just by chance that in 2006, I saw that the DA's office was hiring and I really said, wow, I, I could become a prosecutor and really, really help children. And so um, I think it started from the army, but it was just certain little areas. I just got lucky. Um, and I think from the army, uh, it, it helped me uh, kind of have that direction um, um, to help children. I know it's tough. It's difficult because emotionally it's a hard subject. And a lot of people, um, there's a lot of DAs who don't want to do these cases. A lot of DAs don't want to, they just don't. And especially become a parent, it's even more difficult, but I think I have an obligation to give back to my community. I have an obligation to help children. Um, I have an obligation to try to take the negatives that I went through and turn them into positives to try to help others. I think the fact that you took on such a sacrificial type of work, because even when somebody doesn't go through abuse, it's a very, very hard thing to look at child abuse cases and, and, and to know them so intimately as you must when you are a DA. Um, but when you've been through it yourself, I think in some ways, yes, that makes you uniquely positioned to really understand the cycle, what's going on, but also it can hurt you every time when you get involved in a case like this. And I know you mentioned that this is the worst case probably that you've seen. And yet you understand why some of Gabriel's last words and last pieces of work from school were all about how much he loved 
his mom. It, do you also resonate with that? Even despite your parents' shortcomings, do you still want their love and approval today as an adult? 100%. Um, I know exactly what Gabriel was asking for. Um, uh, don't we all, you know, it, it's, um, Gabriel just wanted his mom to love him. Um, he always did. Um, no matter what she did to him, he just, he wanted her to be proud of him. And I think I've always wanted my parents to love me. I still do. Um, I always want them to be proud of me. Um, I'm always, I think, trying to do things to make my parents proud of me to say, you know, we love you. You did a good job. And, um, it's hard when you go through late relationships and situations like this, cause that's, that's what happens is you're always trying to get that love and no matter what they do to you, no matter how negative they are to you, you keep coming back. Uh, because yeah. that's, I mean, it just, that's part of being a human part of being, uh, uh a person. Um, so, um, I, it's one, it, it just, when I saw that note, uh, when I talked to Jennifer Garcia, when I, when I looked at some of the things in, in Gabriel's desk, um, mm. I, I can relate to that 100%. Yeah. It broke my heart when I was looking at that, um, coupon that he made for his mom. And one of them said, this coupon is good for, and he filled it in a time for you and me. And, uh, that really made me just choke up that that was still what he was looking for, um, despite everything that this person was doing to him. It's interesting. Right now we have, and for a few years now, people have been really obsessed with true crime. Um, I guess in some ways it's good because people seem like they're a little bit more knowledgeable about the process and what goes on, but also there's this kind of weird, sick fascination with criminals and their mindset. And I know there's so many people who've probably asked you this question, maybe in some of your letters or even throughout the documentary, what is the motive for Gabriel's torture and murder, especially because he seemed like he was a scapegoat. So his sisters and his brother did not suffer at all in the way that Gabriel did. And just the fact that they took him back probably for welfare fair money. And there's some evidence of this, yet they just proceeded to torture him as much as they did. I mean, that takes a lot of energy and time to do what they did to him. So what do you think was the motive for Isaro and for Pearl? So first, what I tell most people is, even though I deal with the worst of the worst, most people are good. Um, most people are good people. Most people love their children. Sometimes, you know, we lose our patience. Uh, sometimes we're young and we, we're not even understanding ourselves. And so we have a hard time raising children. There's, there's mental health issues, there's drug issues, there's economic issues. And so all these stressors happen. And sometimes it's very difficult to, to raise children and, and sometimes you make mistakes. Um, so there are cases like that. Um, I deal with a very small group of cases where you're talking about really, really bad individuals. And so in Gabriel's case, I think one, Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Aguirre never bonded with Gabriel, especially Pearl, who is his mom. Um, she gave him up right when he was born. Uh, he was raised by uh, her brother, his uncle, and his uncle's partner for a long period of time and loved. And then raised by uh, Robert and Sandra, Pearl's uh, parents, his grandparents. 
and he was loved there too. Um, the only reason I could see that Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Aguirre took him was because of the money, because Pearl had given him up a long time ago and she never really loved him. And so why would you want him back all of a sudden? Um, and so there was no bonding. Uh, you had, you know, he was seven at the time. You had a seven-year-old little boy who she never had any bonding with him. And so that's one problem you have. Uh, the second issue was, is Pearl, her background, she was tough. You know, she was, she was uh, involved with gangs. Um, she was a tough and hardened female. Um, she was strong. Uh, no matter how small she was, she was a strong and tough female. And then you had Asaro Aguirre, who was also tough and big. And he was a security guard. He had, you know, the, the um, uh, handcuffs and the pepper spray and the batons. Um, and so they both looked at Gabriel, who was more of a soft, uh, gentle, um, sweet young boy, sweet kid, um, who most people would see as just a normal boy. But I think they saw him as somebody who was weak, who was mm -hmm. at least what they determined to be gay um, based upon. I'm not sure what thought process they were thinking. Maybe they didn't. They thought as a boy, he wasn't tough enough. I know he played sometimes with Virginia's toys, but for whatever reason, they thought that he was gay. And I think that that's another part of the motive is that they had still Ezekiel and Virginia there. Um, they weren't individuals who, I'll use the word crazy, to the point where they were just abusing all the children, where they didn't know what they were doing. They, they directed their abuse towards one child, which shows intent. Um, and, um, you know, they abused, tortured, uh, mutilated Gabriel. And so I think that one reason is this lack of bonding. The second reason is uh, they believe that he was gay. Um, and I think that it was also a perfect combination of the two of them. Um, I think together that they were deadly, um, where that they, they were feeding off of each other uh, and they got off on abusing and, and torturing Gabriel. And I think that at least based upon everything I've seen uh, is the motive in the case. It's a sickening phenomenon, but you do see individuals who seem to get a high off of torturing and hurting people. And as you mentioned, that one-upmanship of being in this partnership together, we have definitely seen cases like this where two people together become serial murderers together, you know, in, in other cases. And, and it's like the more you do, the more you need to get that same high again and to feel powerful and to feel that dopamine kick or whatever it was that they were seeking. And I know that we all want to believe that people are generally good. And I hear what you're saying. And I think people are generally good too. But whenever I get this question as a forensic psychologist, people ask me, well, do you think this person can be rehabilitated? Which is oftentimes the question they ask me if I'm brought into a case that's uh, of a criminal nature. I as I'm looking at this documentary and just reading what I'm reading, I don't have confidence that these two individuals could have ever been rehabilitated, despite the fact that maybe Pearl did come from her own abuse and she had a rough life and et cetera, et cetera. But not everybody who's had a rough life does what she does. What are your opinions about that? Do you think either of them could have been rehabilitated to become productive citizens? So the best answer is no. Um, I think that, like I said, there's a small group of people that I deal with. I think Individuals who torture and murder innocent, helpless children, um, I just, who, over a long period of time, so you're talking about systematic abuse, 
not a one-time thing. Um, and, and they, they get off and doing that. I don't think those individuals, uh, can be rehabilitated. And I don't think those individuals should live in our society. Um, I would say this too. I personally would never have a case where I would seek the death penalty if I believe somebody could be rehabilitated. Um, uh, I would not be a part of a case where I thought I'm seeking the death penalty, but I think somehow this person can be rehabilitated. So there's only a small, I, I would say for me, a small group of people that I know of that can't be rehabilitated, at least in my opinion. And, and Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Aguirre are two of those individuals. And, and it just, if you look at everything they did over a long period of time, um, and it wasn't just a one-time thing, not even just a two-time thing. Um, yeah. For a helpless individual, um, yeah, I just can't see, and never saying they're sorry, never you know uh, stepping up and admitting everything they did, never showing any type of emotion that what they, you know, people just look at a little bit of the pictures in Gabriel's case and they, they're shocked. Um, mm -hmm. you can't get, there's no emotion from either of them. You just don't see any humanity there. And I, no. so for me, if, if that's the case and I have all the evidence, yeah, there are some cases where I don't think the individuals could, individuals can be rehabilitated. And I think this is one of those cases. I would imagine that if you had seen some level of compassion or something, it may have even caused you to second guess, oh, maybe this person, there's a small chance here, but you didn't see that at all. And, and I think that that is, unfortunately, um, as you mentioned, the case for a very small minority, but these people exist nevertheless. And I, I just say that some people really, they, they seem like they're just pure evil. They're just born evil or something about them is evil. And there's nothing you can do. You can't reason with them. You can't somehow try to get them to feel those empathy and uh, those types of human emotions that other people might feel. And I know that this whole case exposed a lot of issues with the system. It, it exposed issues with child protective services. It exposed issues with the police department. And pretty fairly soon after Gabriel Fernandez's case, you became involved in two other cases that unfortunately have very similar threads where it was torture that led to death, Noah Quattro and Anthony Avalos. And I just wonder now, as you're looking at your how everything is going, do you feel like the system is better? And do you feel like we're moving in the right direction? That's a tough question. Um, I, I would say the first thing I would say is I don't understand why a child needs to be tortured and murdered before we start making um, changes. Someone has to explain to me why do we need children to be tortured and murdered before we as a society and we as a community, and I believe we are the best country before we as a society and a community start caring about children, especially vulnerable children, especially children of color. Why do we need people to children to die, children to be tortured before we even start making uh, changes. Um, so that's the first problem I have is that I, I, a lot of times I see changes within um, DCFS, within the police department based upon hor horrific or horrendous cases. And I don't know why we just can't as a, as a society say, children are our most important resource. Why can't we give money or put money into schooling? Why can't we put money into helping children? Um, yeah. so that would be the first thing I'd say. 
The second thing is if children are still getting tortured and murdered, especially when DCFS is involved, to me, we haven't done enough. And so we need to do more. Um, we're not doing enough. Um, and um, so I have a real problem with, with um, cases where DCFS is involved and children, you know, over long periods of time, you're talking months and years, and we're still not protecting children. Uh, I have a problem. Um, you know, we are the best county. Um, I, I believe that. I love being a part of Los Angeles County, and I believe we're the best county. But to be the best county, uh, we need to help children. And, and we have the money to do it, um, so we should do it. And so I just don't um, – listen, I need to do my part, too, because I'm a part of the system. But I, I think that um, we need more individuals who really care. Um, it, it's one thing to become a prosecutor or to become a social worker or become a police officer um, uh, it's the other thing to do it because you really care about the community and care about what you're doing. And so I hope there's more people who get involved in this system who really care. Because once you really care, then you become invested and then you're willing to, 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 to put more into uh, the system. So I think that's, we have a long way to go. Um, I think there are some improvements, but I think a lot of them have come because of a horrific or horrendous case. And I think, why can't we just start helping children? Why can't we just do that? Right. I think it's hard for people if they've watched this documentary, if they've read the stories, not just about Gabriel, but about Noah and Anthony also, they, they don't know where to turn because the system that is supposed to protect children um, isn't doing so as well as they should be. And of course, there's a lot of different reasons. I know that the system is overwhelmed, all of those things. But I also agree with you that people need to understand that children's lives are at stake doing this type of work. And if you are not the right person for this, have the self-reflection to leave that position. Don't just stay in the position and go through your day, not necessarily focused on what you're doing. Um, and I, and I think there's just so many other things that we can still do. And I know that we're not there yet, but I know that this has caused a deeper examination. And like you said, it shouldn't have been so reactive. Why wasn't it proactive? Why didn't some of these things that I know they're trying to put into place now, why wasn't this done before? So I do think that people have really strong feelings about that. And yet I don't have answers either. I don't know how we're going to fix all of this in the next few months. You know, this is not going to happen. And so I think it's a process. I think obviously we do have an imperfect system, but also individuals, everybody needs to step up and really take ownership of the work that they're doing. And not everybody's cut out for this stuff. And not everybody's cut out for your work either, even though you have inspired a lot of people to do this. And that's why I want to move on to the supercharged tip of the day, which is all about combating burnout because it's hard. And you went through this for years with Gabriel's case. And now here you are with two other cases and other cases that are on your docket. And I know you mentioned that emotions were high. It was tough. It, it caused you to have little spats with your wife when probably you didn't have to do that. You know, um, you had to also do your duties as a father and it's just a lot of things to have to manage. So what are some of the things that help you to get through the day and to not get to that point of burnout where you detach from what you're doing or your life and 
you start to feel ineffective in what you're doing? So one, I work out. Um, so, and I think it's real important to do that because, um, I do think it makes you feel good inside. I think it makes, uh, your body, it, it changes how you feel. Um, so I know in the trial and even after in the trial, I would run and I'd be out there crying while I'm running. Cause you got to really, you have your music on, you know, you can kind of like just be on your own and just, you know, think about things that have happened and just a good release. Um, so I think working out is really good. I do yoga. I think yoga is good one, because it gives you a lot of flexibility and, and you do get a good workout, but two, you kind of get a little time to self reflect a little bit. Um, and I think that's important too, but working out is really, really important. Um, I think as a prosecutor for, for most jobs where you have a lot of stress, I think getting out there and doing some type of exercise, uh, is really, really important. I think you got to be careful. You got to eat well. Um, you know, I think a lot of times people, you know, during these stressful things don't eat well. I think that's really, really important. Um, I try to avoid alcohol and things of that nature. Not to say alcohol is bad, but I think when it comes to stress, it's much better to do, do things as, as far as working out and more uh, healthier things. Um, I think also communication is really, really important. I think during the Gabriel case, some of the mistakes I made was I, I held a lot of stuff in. And so, you know, if something bothered me, all of a sudden I'd lash out, you know, and my wife's there. And so I'd lash out instead. Now I usually come home and we do talk about things and um, I'm able to kind of get things off my chest a little bit. Um, and I, I think that's really, really important. And sometimes it's tough to communicate, but um, I think it's really good to do that. Um, that's very, very important. I'm um, also spending time with your family. Um, do take the time to spend with your children um, because they don't know what you've been through and they're just looking forward to seeing you. And so at least take some time to spend with them, to listen to what they have to say, to try to detach from what you're doing uh, and spend time with them. I think that's also a really, really good thing too. Um, and I think, I think if you do those things, and it takes a while to learn because when I was a young prosecutor, I didn't really understand these things. And so the longer <laughs> I've been going through this process, um, the better... Uh, uh, I have gotten as far as understanding myself and just understanding ways to be healthy. And I think then it makes me a better prosecutor, a better dad, a better person. Um, it yeah. makes me feel better about myself. Um, yeah. Your tips are fantastic. And just to recap, you got to start with self-care. And I know that people who are busy, who are workaholics, uh, who really are into their jobs, it's easy to let that go because you don't have time or maybe you believe you don't deserve it. That also can be tied to low self-esteem. You know, I don't deserve to be taken care of, but I'll take care of everybody else. But I love the airplane analogy of you put your mask on before you help somebody else. You have to, otherwise you'll die. So you do have to take care of yourself Burnout is something that is significant. It can cause early death, chronic illnesses. It can cause depression, anxiety, and people even sometimes start to have suicidal ideation. It can be a very, very severe thing if you don't deal with it. And exercise is huge, especially in a sedentary job. You're mostly in courtrooms, studying files. You know, it's nice to be able to really work out the stress and, and be able to do something good for your body, eating well, treating it right. But also, having these healing relationships that create safety for you. You're in a job that is constantly fight or flight and you're, you're dealing with really tough material. And so you need to have that break where you go home and you shut things off and it's not about work and it's just about those healing relationships and that connection to these other aspects of your life. 
And as you mentioned, communicating, talking about your experience, a lot of people do hold their emotions in. And like you said, it is a little bit better now, although I still find that there's a lot of stigma about therapy, um, about getting self-care, about all kinds of stuff, talking about your experiences. We're still not really there yet. You know, we don't really treat mental wellness the same way that we treat physical wellness. But being able to just communicate about your experiences instead of holding everything in, I think one of the most beautiful things uh, about humanity is that vulnerability, that one-on-one conversation that you have with somebody where you really bear your soul and you get to have a deeper conversation. And it feels so much better when you talk about it. The next day you wake up and you, you're, you're a different person. And so I really appreciate that you've shared those tips. And I think it's, it's important for everybody to take stock in that because I do think that in this very go, go, go society, we forget to do some of those things. And that's why these stressors accumulate. Totally agree. Totally agree. <laughs> yeah. I think mental health is, is, is one of the most important things. People don't think that. But especially now, especially during this time period, um, I can tell you, even with my children, the fact that their whole life has been changed, um, even my son, who's now supposed to, you know, go through schooling, you know, through, you know, the Internet. Um, yeah, a lot of times now uh, the kids cry a lot more. Um, they're making these little tents and hiding in these tents. And so you really have I think mental health is much more important. Uh, um, then people realize it's so important. I, I, I 100% agree with you. And providing that great outlet and that great model for your children that it's okay for them to express those emotions and it's normal. I think that is a beautiful thing. Well, John, I have really enjoyed talking with you and I've learned so much from you and just keep up the phenomenal work that you're doing. You're really bringing justice to people who can't speak for themselves and your work is truly inspiring. So I. Really, really thank you for your dedication to your job. Oh, th- thank you so much. Thank you. And I thank you for your dedication too. And, and uh, I really appreciate uh, your podcast and what you do for the community. Thank you so much. Now, where can people find out more about you or learn more about your work? Um, that's a good question. You can always come to court. <laughs> um, I do volunteer my time a lot in Santa Clarita, um, where I live. Um, so you can see me out there. Um, my kids play sports, so I'm usually out, out doing that too. Uh, I go to a lot of events regarding, uh, crime survivors or survivors of child abuse. Um, so I do that a lot also. Um, I'm usually running around downtown Los Angeles. Yep. So if you see me at Echo Park or any of the parks down here, uh, running around, uh, that, that will be me. Um, <laughs> we got, of course, probably the best place to find me. Um, cause usually if I'm not there, I'm usually with my family. Uh, yeah. but, uh, um, I'm always available. Um, I, I try to, uh, uh, reach out to individuals if they, if they need anything. I try to help a lot of the students, uh, at schools, especially, um, when they have projects and whatnot. Uh, but probably court's probably the best place to, to find me if somebody wanted to find me. Perfect. And yep, people can just walk right in, you know, all of these, uh, cases you can, you can walk in. They, they do take audience members. Um, <laughs> Thank you again so much, Don, for being with us. And thank you for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, follow me at Dr. Judy Ho on social. And remember to subscribe, download, and tell your friends. I'm Dr. Judy. And remember, any time is a great time to supercharge your life.